Hey L2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Today's reading comes from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to church. Um, This is the last sermon. I can't believe it's over, but this is the last sermon in this series on the meaning of work. What we've been trying to do is actually answer the question that oftentimes eludes many of us, even as Christians, is why so many of us continue to spend the majority of our waking time engaged in work that has no, it has none of the characteristics that motivate us. It has none of the qualities in the work that we typically do that make us want to get out of bed and go to work. Many of you, uh, like the majority, the vast majority of people in the world, lament Sundays because it leads to the Monday that's following. And so there's a lot going on in, in the way that Christians perceive work, even asking ourselves the question how those of us that have found meaning in work, how we continue to allow our friends and loved ones continue to engage in work that they don't find meaning in. And so there's quite a bit in this, I think, when you, when you begin to look at it, is how, as Christians, those who believe Jesus came to change the world, we believe that He's at work in us, we believe that the, the, the Word of God actually is illuminating our understanding of the world, and yet it seems like this part of our worldview is almost cordoned off. It's almost as if, well, this is going to be a toilsome part of my life, this is going to be a part of my life that will never really have substance to it or direction to it. And I really don't believe that that's right. Um, Hopefully through this series we've been able to discover a a lot of what is going on in science and research that's being done recently is showing that what science is beginning to discover about various aspects of work, psychological happiness, all of these things are beginning to converge where you should be as Christians. In other words, they're, they're just now beginning to discover what you should already know about your work and what it should mean, how you actually can derive meaning from your work. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to finish this series by considering this the topic of passion. And the reason that I selected this particular topic to end the series on is that I think each of us know what it's like to have passion in something. Each of us knows what happens when passion comes into our heart or into our lives, and we find ourselves remarkably motivated. 
And equally, we, we know what it's like to do things without passion. When we have passion, it seems like the time flies by. It tends, we tend to play nicer with others. Our creativity goes up. Our efficiency goes up because we find ourselves engaging in something that has almost a motivation of its own. Conversely, when we engage in things that we have no passion for, it seems like the time drags. We, don't, there's, there, we tend to have higher degrees of conflict, lower degrees of overall happiness in our life, and yet we continue to just kind of keep our, our head down and pretend like that's the way it's supposed to go. Now, another one of the reasons that I've chosen to finish this series with the consideration of passion is is that we oftentimes, you, you can hardly listen to an award ceremony for entertainers on television and, and not hear a famous entertainer get up and tell people just to follow their dream. Never give up on your dream. Follow your passion. It can come true. And for some people, I think that that type of statement can be a good thing, but for many of us, it's not a good thing at all. Because passion, as we're going to see here in just a moment, Passion can be a very good thing, but it also can be a very destructive thing in our lives. And so if you're encouraged to follow your passion and you're wanting to make it through the rigors of medical school or the rigors of law school, that might be a very, very needed uh, encouragement that you would hear. But what about the kid that wants to become a drug dealer? What about the person who just wants to steal his neighbor's car? To follow his dream is going to land him in prison. And so the way that we understand these categories oftentimes needs refined. It needs kind of some governance to it that, that I think could be much more helpful than what we typically hear. Now, to engage this, this topic today, we're going to do what we've done throughout the series, and we're going to start by looking at the science of passion, and then we're going to look at two samples of Scripture among many, many that could speak to this issue of passion. So as we start with the science of passion, I want to give you some kind of generic definitions. The most generic is one that comes from the Merriam-Webster dictionary that defines passion as a strong feeling of enthusiasm or excitement for something. Now, that's a fairly accurate definition that I think most of us can relate to. Um, when you look at the the derivative or where we get our idea of passion, typically you would have to look at the Greek culture. And in, in the Greek language, the term pathos is the term from which we would derive passion. And it, it refers to both good and bad desires. But most importantly, the term pathos refers to something that is a desire that becomes so strong that it's ungovernable. You can't contain it anymore. And so, this is, when we're talking about passion, we're talking about something that gets a hold of you deeply. Now, a technical or academic definition of that that we're going to be looking at today is that passion is a strong inclination towards a self-defining activity that people like or even love, they find important, and in which they invest time and energy on a regular basis. And so you take all of that and you kind of condense it down to a workable understanding is that passion basically refers to a strong emotional desire for something or someone that has a motivational force in it all of its own. Now, it's that motivational aspect of passion that is being most researched today. Companies are trying to figure out 
Well, how do we inspire passion in the people that work for us? What happened to it when we had it and now we don't? And they're trying to figure out what it is and what causes it, what diminishes or destroys it. And this is where the nature of the research and the science of passion is really headed today. Now, I want to show you some of the research and the findings of two, two people that have done an extensive amount of work in the field of passion. One is Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, and the second is Robert Valorand, who, who did an amazing amount of research and condensed it into a paper that we're going to be looking at a couple of these issues that hopefully will show you what I said earlier, is that what they're saying about passion and what the scripture is saying about passion to us as Christians is, is bringing us increasingly to this intersection, which is remarkably interesting. But uh, let's start by considering Jim Collins. Now, Jim Collins is basically, his findings about passion is that Passion is something that has to be harnessed. In other words, if, if you just engage passion in a vacuum without anything else speaking to it, it's going to be destructive. It's going to be counterproductive. And so he is essentially concluding after all of his research that it's something that has to be harnessed. In his book, Good to Great, he deals with the concept of passion in a much more balanced way than what you hear from the average award ceremony. Because he is saying there's two things that kind of like a, like a sea anchor keep, keep us directed in the right way, but not because of passion in and of itself. Um, he makes this statement in the book. He says, the essential strategic difference between the good to great and the comparison companies lay in two fundamental distinctions. First, the good to great companies founded their strategies on deep understanding along the line along three key dimensions, what we came to call the three circles. Second, the good to great companies translated that understanding into a simple crystalline uh, concept that guided all their efforts, hence the term the hedgehog con concept. And so he basically said that there's three circles from which you can understand your passion and have it direct you the most, the most concisely or the most profitably. The first circle was excellence, and what he defined it for in the, in the book and what his research concluded was is that this is what you can do to be the best in the world. Now, he, he cautions that it's just as important for you to understand the things that you can't do which I think is a very healthy thing because oftentimes, especially in a, in a culture that's beset with self-esteem and positive emotion or positive psychology, we can be told things just because people are so polite they don't, they don't tell us we shouldn't be doing it. That's why I've always believed that parents should uh, consistently have their children engaged in disciplines like math or uh, even music because if, if you're not very proficient, if you don't have core competence in those areas, it's embarrassing. There's very few people that can overcome, you know, uh, uh, a recital in music that is just painful. And even children at a young age can know that they don't have very much competence in that. And even when people try to flatter them, they kind of have a sense of it that, that won't be taken aside from that. And so this first fear is excellence and it's understanding what it is you can actually do that would actually be the best in the world. 
Now, what he goes on to explain this is that he said this is discerning, this is a standard that goes beyond core competence because it's, it's looking at something that you have a gift and talent for that you really deeply believe in, that you can be the best at. The second sphere that is joined into this is what drives your economic engine. If you can't make money at what you're trying to do or what your excellence is, then it's not going to be sustainable. And the last sphere that he joins to this is the one that we would consider passion. And this is what you actually are deeply passionate about. And, but he goes on to distinguish this. These, what they found both in their corporate study as well as with individuals that were remarkably successful and accomplished is these people weren't looking for what ignited their passion. They weren't looking for what they could start passion with. They were looking at what already had it, what already possessed it for them. Now, over the years of my counseling and coaching, I found that there are some people that when you ask them, well, what are you passionate about? They'll look at you with a strange look on their face. It's almost like, I don't know. And I really don't know that that's possible. That the way God created us as human beings is that our affections are so powerful that they're always drawn to something. And so when someone says, I really don't understand, or I've never really tapped into where my passion is, it's almost always a reason for concern because it's either there's a sense of dishonesty in it, where they have a passion yet they won't admit where their passion lies, or there's a sense in ambiguity that needs kind of sharpened. They need some assistance to find it. But you have a passion. Each of you do. It's impossible for, impossible for us as human beings to exist with no passion at all. And so it's those three fears, those convergence of those fears that create something that he said was remarkably different in these companies and individuals that they studied. Now, this is what he goes on to say about it personally, and I think this is helpful. He said, to quickly grasp the three circles, consider the following personal analogy. He said, suppose you were able to construct a work life that meets the following three tests. First, you are doing work for which you have a genetic or God-given talent, and perhaps you could be one of the best in the world in applying that talent. Secondly, you are well paid for what you do. And third, you are doing work that you are passionate about and absolutely love to do, enjoying the actual process for its own sake. If you could drive towards the intersection of, of those three circles and translate that in, intersection into a simple crystalline concept that guided your life choices, then you would have a, what he calls the hedgehog, hedgehog concept for yourself, for yourself. And so what he's saying is that you can't follow passion by itself. It must be mixed with a very, very good understanding of a sustainable economic engine and what it is that you can be excellent about. And so by saying that, he's saying that you can be passionate for things that are unsustainable. Many of you have passions for hobbies that you could never turn into a career. And many of you have passions for things that you're not very good at. And he's saying following those things is going to be misleading and destructive. It's not going to be profitable for you. And so there's some of just some of the science and some of the research is coming. Now, when you step back and you look at this, this is not that different than what Martin Seligman came to conclude about the second happiness that they're discovering in, in positive psychology today. 
Because Seligman said the engaged life requires you to find your, your signature gifts and to recraft your life to use them as much as you possibly can. And so what Collins is saying and what positive psychology is discovering is very, very consistent about this idea of being excellent and yet passionate about what it is you're driving for. Now, the second scientist that I want you to consider is Robert Valorand, and his conclusion is that you better really understand your passion. In other words, there's something about passion that is nuanced as the research is beginning to show that can be one type of passion is very helpful and another type can be very, very destructive. Now, they've developed this, what they call the dualistic mode of passion that is actually beginning to discover that there's two types of passions that we all possess. One is harmonious passion and one is obsessive passion. Now, harmonious passion emerges when you volitionally engage in activity due to its correspondence with who, how you view yourself. In other words, there's things that you become passionate about because they speak deeply to how you understand your personal identity. Now, obsessive passion is a very different passion that is, makes you just as driven, and it's not quite as discernible because obsessive passion emerges in our lives when we're engaged with some activity or some pursuit indirectly. Now, to give you an example of that, many of you go to work. The majority of people in the United States go to work, if you go back to those three circles, they go to work not because they have passion, not because they have excellence. They go to work seeing they have a single circle, an economic engine. And it's something like 85 to 87% of people in the United States go to work only to collect a paycheck. They're not very good at what they do, and they don't have any passion for it whatsoever. But they continue to do it year after year, decade after decade, because it produces an income. And what he's saying is that the obsessive type of passion that is so counterproductive, we're going to look at it in just a moment, it comes from situations that you become passionate about because of sense of urgency. And so, to give you some example, say, say one of you young couples had a child that was kidnapped. And the demands that were put upon you as the parents to, to raise the, the, you know, the hostage money or, uh, what do they call that? Ransom, thank you. <laughs> My mind just went totally blank. So, you would be unbelievably diligent. To, to engage that. You, you would be motivated to where you might not even sleep. You would be frantic in doing it. But you see, that's not that far from how some of you work. There's an obsession about what you do, not because you sense how it engages your identity and how you understand yourself. You're obsessed with what you do because if you don't, you'll lose your house. You're passionate about it, not because of how it makes you you 2.0, a better human being, you're engaged in it merely because of the duress or the stress or the fear of what would happen if you didn't. And so it's those types of passions and motivations that are now being able to be researched and analyzed. And, and what Valorand and his team actually was saying is that passion is absolutely important because it's the motivational force that leads you to continue. See, without it, burnout is inevitable. He goes on to say that harmonious passion, because of 
The way it increases our experience of positive emotion, it protects us from disengagement and burnout, where obsessive passion actually drives you towards those things. So if you're engaged in work, even passionately, and you get up and you can diligently go through your work week, you can diligently con continue to turn in day after day, week after week, month after month, but it's not because of a deep sense of who you are. It eventually is going to grind you to powder. That's what they're finding. Now, Valorant kind of condenses um, his paper into this. He says, he says in sum, the take-home message from this paper is that being passionate towards a given activity will lead the person to engage in the activity frequently, often over several years and sometimes a lifetime. But here's the crucial part of that quote. He says, harmonious passion for a given activity and uh, will generally lead to the experience of positive emotions during activity engagement while you actually do it. Such emotions in turn will foster increased, increases in psychological well-being. Thus, over time, harmonious passion is expected to facilitate sustainable increases in psychological well-being and prevent, uh, uh, prevent against ill-being. Obsession passion, on the other hand, while ensuring regular activity engagement, you'll continue to do it, does not produce such psychological gains and may even facilitate, uh, this is a hard term to pronounce, deleterious, 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 thank you. Um, we have attorneys in the group so they know how to pronounce all that. I wrote down the pronunciation here and I, I just can't read it. Um, it goes on, he says, clearly not all intentional activities produce positive effects on, psych on psychological well-being. In this light, harmonious passion would deserve much attention as a major contributor of sustainable psychological well-being. And so this research is showing what we're going to see here from these samples of biblical teaching, that you can't just blindly follow your passion and expect it to take you to happiness. You can't just muster the courage to quit your job and take another job and expect it always and only, to bring you safely into the harbor of happiness. Some of it will destroy your life. And so discerning the difference between good passion and bad passion is a major aspect and a major burden that each of us have because not all passion is the same. Now when we look at the samples, the second part, when you look at the samples of instruction, you have to admit that Christianity explains passion to be actually a direct correlation of your thinking, your convictions. In other words, where your thinking resides and where your thinking and what you believe to be true is really grounded from that flow out your passions as well as every other aspect of your humanity. And so oftentimes when you look in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, you find passion spoken to oftentimes in a very cautious way. It is almost entirely dealt with that way in the, in the New Testament. There's warnings against passion throughout the New Testament. But there are places where you can look at what the Scripture is saying about how a person engages his or her convictions, how you both cultivate those convictions and passions as well as how you maintain them and keep them from suffering loss. Now, the first example that we're going to look at is very consistent with what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, where he, verse 11, I'm sorry, he said, 
when he was young, he, he thought as a child. But as he grew, he, he outgrew child, childish things. He had to put them away. And see, we've all experienced that. I think if you were to go back five years and certainly ten years, in your own life, you would have to say that your heart or your affections were set on things that are entirely different than they are now. Possibly you were a young woman at the time, and now you're a mother. Perhaps you were working for someone else, and now you're a business owner. And your passions have altered through the years. They haven't remained the same. They haven't appeared in a vacuum. You can see that they're circumstantially determined, and they've altered themselves over the years. So understanding how it is that we cultivate and maintain passion is critical, I think, in Christian, Christian circles. And so this first example taken from Proverbs chapter 4, shows us that passion comes from actually believing something. Now, before we actually engage this passage, there's many times where you come to scriptures that they require presuppositions. You you can't just jump into the text without without considering some of the things that the author has already preconceived. There's already a foundation at work and there's two of them in these verses prior to just engaging them. One is that you all are believing something. In other words, there's great harm possibly in what you believe, as well as great benefit in possibly what you believe. And the second thing that I think is really germane to a place like Denver is the fact that you can actually find truth. Whatever we've been told about it all being relative is nonsense. I can remember a discussion I had with a, we called it the Breakfast Club, probably 10 years ago now, and there, was, there were students from like six or seven different universities in, in the city that would get together at six o'clock in the morning, which I think in and of itself was a miracle, but, but we, we engaged a whole bunch of different books. I think Good to Great was probably one of them in the time that we looked at it, and I can remember one day we got engaged and there was a, there was a student from Boulder and he was in law school, And he came and he proposed this idea that love could mean anything. And I I remember just sitting back and listening to the group debate that that idea. And I can remember sooner or later what emerged in the discussion is that if love could actually mean hate, part of anything, if love could mean hate, can love really mean anything? If it could mean everything, could it mean anything at all? And the group concluded that it couldn't. Now, the one individual wasn't convinced at all. But, but I can tell you that there's something about this, that what he is saying in these verses is that you are inevitably going to believe something, number one. And number two, truth can be recognized. It can be brought into your life. Now, with those presuppositions, I think you begin to look at what he says in these verses in a very interesting way. In verse 22, he gives you the motivation to do what he's going to exhort you to do. And in verse 22, he says, for these are life to those who find them and healing to all of their flesh. Now, what he's saying is that these words don't lead to life. What he's saying is that these words are life itself. In other words, by possessing certain understandings, there's an alteration of our worldview. There's a modification of it that actually leads us to everything that we're pursuing. It's right there, and that's the exhortation. That's the motivation or the incentive that he's built into it. And so when he gets to verse 
23, he tells you the exhortation. He says, you, you better dispose yourself towards the protection of your heart with all the diligence you can muster. Because who you are as an individual will emerge directly from who it is you are internally. So you better protect it. Now, what's interesting in that is that he's really pointing out that the things that you believe will make you as a human being. It's very similar to what Paul would write about a thousand years later when he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's a deep aspect of this as Christians that we know that we can't believe anything that comes down the pipe. We can't, we can't succumb or move away. There's a pursuit that is necessary for us to govern our lives, which certainly includes our passions. He says, from your heart flow the springs of everything that you are. The genesis of who you are as a human being is tied in a direct correlation to how you think. And so I, I think as a, as, as a city, as a generation, I think we can, we can listen to that without much difficulty, right? There's nothing threatening about that in and of itself until you begin to think of the fact that believing anything at all is a remarkable loss of personal freedom. And it's built into these verses. And the reason is, is that he says you have to keep these which means that the belief of anything deep inside of your heart is going to require you to be pushing towards something. And he says you need to put away from you, yourself, crooked speech. In other words, the courage to believe something about the things around you is going to drive you towards some, some things, just like it's going to drive you away from other things. It's both positive and negative. That's a loss of freedom. Because you cannot just choose to believe whatever you want any longer. Not if you really believe anything at all. And so there's the first sample that talks deeply and speaks deeply to what it is that would bring about conviction, what it is that would bring about a solidarity in a person's thought that would cause her to be able to stand up for something, to pursue it, to continue it over years and even a lifetime, and would cause another person to turn away from it. And so there's something in the cultivation of passion that I, Scripture speaks to deeply. This, but the second sample is something in Scripture that talks about maintaining it. And, and this is a very interesting way because what James is writing is that to sustain your convictions or your passion, your affection, it's going to come from you actually having the courage to face the things that you're uncertain about. Now, I personally grew up in in churches and even in, in my own walk with the Lord over the years, I oftentimes was counseled away from my doubts. And it sounded really innocuous. It sounded like this, that, well, you just need to believe more. You just don't have enough faith. You don't have enough hope. And that was my problem, is that there was something about my understanding of my faith that wasn't answering the questions that I had, and it, it, it was causing conflict inside of me. It was causing me to question the things that I had formerly not questioned. And that advice, I think, is unbelievably destructive to your passion. I think some of you inevitably are going to be stuck there even this morning. 
that there's almost a point that you can ask certain types of questions that make you kind of fearful around other Christians. Like questions like, well, what if the Bible isn't true? What if this whole thing is just what they would secularists say that it is? It's just a manipulation and a ploy of weak-minded people. And the only reason that you can continue to hold this is because you won't dare to think for yourself. And if you would, you'd see through this and you'd stop. What if that's true? You see, my doubts are, are, are much more serious than that. When I graduated from seminary in 1992 and I came home, my brother, my youngest brother and his wife, they didn't believe some of the things that I was saying then. I came back different than I did when I left. And I remember him telling me that he, they said, that, let's just see if these things are true. And I can tell you over the next, he, he was killed in 2010, but I can tell you over the next 18 years, he trusted me. And some of my deepest doubts come from the fact that one day I'll find out that he wasn't saved. And it's not, I don't have any reason to question whether my brother was sincere in what he believed, but what if he trusted me with everything and he doesn't make it to heaven? You see, there's a doubt that I don't think any of you should have that much difficulty in thinking that I could possibly have in my mind. What do you do with things like that? What do you do when you question the scripture? What do you do when you say, I just can't bring myself to believe that? Well, these verses in James 1 are speaking deeply to that. They're talking about what happens when you really don't know what you believe and whether you can continue to hold on to it any longer. And so there's something in this. In James chapter 1 and verse 5 to 8, his primary point is the avoidance of doubt. There's no dismissing that. But what's particularly interesting is the meaning of the term double-minded. Because when he uses that, it literally referred to a person who was suspended between two opinions. It was a person who didn't know what she should do when it came to continuing in one way or the other way. It just it brought her to a point of complete hesitation and pause. And, and this is what he's speaking to. And so I believe when you look at this, there's three, I'm going to go through this quickly, there's three steps to facing your doubt and processing and moving forward to where you actually have passion at the end of the process. And the first part is fairly obvious in verse 5. You have to admit when you don't know. Now, if you're anything like me, that's hard to admit sometimes, especially if other people are depending on you. If other people are looking into what you're saying, they're examining what you're saying, for you to admit, I think I was wrong, or I don't know if I was right, that's hard to do, but this is the beginning of the process. If you, if you lack wisdom, if you don't know what to do, you need to admit it. The second thing that comes out of this very quickly is also in verse 5, you need to have cultivated a sense of dependence or a sense of confidence on a reliable source of truth. Now, for some of you as Christians, as well as non-Christians, you might say, well, that's the, that's the difficulty part. The difficult part for non-Christians is the fact that you're looking to the Bible to speak to you about the things of the world. And sometimes they don't have that confidence. And you know that. You know that if you, get it, if you engage in discussion with someone that doesn't believe Christianity, is uncertain about Christianity, and you use the Bible's internal statements to determine what you believe, it's disingenuous to them. Well, it's like, see, that's circular, that you're telling me you believe what you believe because of what the Bible says about itself. You see, that's, that's, that's difficult ground. But what is it that you do believe? Where is your confidence? 
You see, even if you're not a Christian this morning, there's some authority in your life. Perhaps the most embarrassing one to admit is that it's you. You see, for some people, they won't believe anything until they're convinced. And what that can do in a subtle way is to say, I am the highest determiner of truth. And so if it, until it meets my criteria, I won't believe anything at all. That is possibly a very dangerous position to be in. But as a Christian, a person who fundamentally claims the gospel to be true, we look to the authority of Scripture, we're able to say, okay, what does God say about this? And that's what he says in verse 5. He says, if you, if you don't know what to do, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without, without reproach, and it will be given him. In the original language, it reads kind of like this. If you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all without discrimination. That's a remarkable promise that he says, if you really want to know, ask me and I'll tell you, both as Christians and non-Christians. And so you have to admit when you're wrong or you don't know, and then you have to admit that you, you actually depend upon a reliable source. And what C.S. Lewis said about this, I think, is remarkable. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. You see, there is a Christian worldview at work. He says, I don't believe in Christianity just like the sun, just because I can look at it and bear it with my eye. But he said, I believe in it because it's taught me that I can see everything else through it. And so that brings us to this third step that he's prescribing here. It's doubting your doubt. Now, this is the lesson I would have learned. I wish I would have learned back in the early 1980s. Because in verse 6, he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And this throws us into what, what, it, what I consider to be one of the most common problems with people interpreting these verses. Because most people come away from these verses to say, you see, James is saying, don't doubt. He's saying, don't doubt. And so if you doubt, you should feel poorly about yourself. You should feel that there's some anemic or some deficiency at work within your faith system. And that's not what he's saying at all when you look at what he wrote. What he's basically writing is the inevitable time that each of us would come to a juncture in which we're not certain. And there he writes in a proposition, it's a participial phrase, which is just a grammatical jargon. He's saying, don't be the doubting one. When you come there, don't stay there. Don't remain in the position of being torn within yourself. You have to work through it. He's not saying don't doubt. He's saying don't remain the doubter. That's what he's really getting at. And so when you read verse 7 and 8, then it sounds remarkable. It says, for, because, that person must not suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Now, this gets at the, one of the most profound statements that I have ever read. And I always thought that this was attributed to Keller. But I think Keller totally stole this from Newbegin. And it's not that Keller is illegitimate at all, but listen to what Leslie Newbigin said about doubting. This, this is perhaps the most remarkable statement I've ever read about this. He said, when we undertake to doubt any statement, we do, do so on the basis of beliefs which, in the act of doubting, we do not doubt. I can only doubt the truth of a statement on the grounds of other things, usually a great many other things, which I have believed to be true. What is he saying? He is saying your doubt emerges from a lack of conviction 
about that assertion. In other words, you've got alternative beliefs that are challenging that assertion. And so in one sense, as Christians, you could say that your doubt is a grace of God to point out your hesitation. It allows you to discover something that you couldn't discover without doubting. And it forces you to get off the fence. It forces you to deal with the conflict that's in you because of your beliefs in something else than what the Scripture is asserting. If that is true, which I believe it is, it is the only way you can grow. Because you think about it, when a person is first converted to Christianity, there's just a few things that she's believed to be true. There's just a handful of propositions that she's able to say, I really think that that's true. I think that there is this, this fall that's at work. God intended this world and brought it into existence to accomplish something that was completely destroyed in the third chapter of the Bible. And because of that fall and the effect that it's had on us, we have continued to live without God and to assert that we can have everything that he promised us without him. And what he did is promise to fix it through the gospel, through the sending of his son. He said, I, I'm actually going to provide something for you to which you can have and be all that I intended for you, but you're not going to have it any other way. And a person who takes that deep inside of her heart is a person that's able to say, I can trust him to lead me through this. But if what James is saying is true, you have to expect him to lead you this way. Because that's beyond some of those suppositions that you affirmed. Suddenly you're convicted about how to engage a marriage or your sex life. You're suddenly convicted about how you treat other people at work. And he, by the unnerving part of the doubt, he's forcing you to get off the fence. And in that sense, he's pushing you into your faith or pushing you out. But there's no middle, not anymore. And so what James is saying is that, listen, you're going to come to times where you lack wisdom, right? You all do. And when you do, do not be the doubting one. Don't be the one that tries to live there. Because if you do, you shouldn't expect to see, receive anything from God. That duplicity will set you out of the stream of the blessing that he brings into the lives of those people that possess that kind of conviction. And in this case, that kind of passion. Throughout this series... What we've tried to do is to show that the claims of Scripture are not that far different than what some of you are learning when you go to seminars about your businesses. They're not all that different from what it is that people are craving and yearning as research and science is saying, these are the things that make you happy. You should understand them because they're the very same things that God said. Now, is science preaching Christianity? Not in the least. If you've taken that from what I've said, you're missing my point. But what we're finding is that science is not the enemy of Christianity. It never has been. We were taught that in the 20th century, but it's a lie. If Christianity is true and God's voice in this world is teaching people how to, as the creator, and he speaks about the creation, if it's true, it should put you in greater harmony with the creation, not disharmony. And I believe that's where we're headed. I, I, I would hope that you would all be more encouraged, that your faith is taking you towards things that should be sustainable in your work and in your commitment in life in general. All right, let me take a couple of questions and then we'll be done. If a Christian seems to be losing their passion 
not having as much as before, perhaps none at all. Could you say that it is a sign of spiritual decline? Possibly. It possibly is. It, it could be that the, the focus that you maintained and the diligence that you possessed for years has ebbed. And it's ebbed in direct correspondence to you holding your faith loosely. And it's declined, it's diminished. But another answer to that would be absolutely no. It, it would be strange to me if you're driven by the same exact passions that you were 10 years ago. And so maybe the pursuit of a certain field has been altered in the, the change of our, our economy. This is not the same city it was 10 years ago. This is the, the advice and the counsel that I would give to those of you that are younger, which is the overwhelming majority of you. Um, if you came to me for counsel in regard to work, I have to be very cautious because my generation and your generation do not view work the same, and it's not always that bad. Many times when I hear the way that you view work, I think, I'm just thinking you're lazy and trying to get a free lunch. But not, that's not always true. I've told you before that I have young people come in with me all the time and they say, how do I maintain work and life balance? And I always say, I don't know, because I never have. I never have. And th there is a generational difference now. But I don't think it's all wrong. I think that there's a future for people understanding what it is that they can do and how they can do it in a passionate way. And I think as they engage that, they find something that many of us who just grounded out before never discovered. And so if your passion has changed, try to find out why. If God really is convicting you that you don't hold your faith as importantly as you did before, then repent and change. That's not that difficult. Start reading your Bible again. Engage with community that can actually sharpen you as you sharpen them. But if that's not the case, then try to figure it out what he's showing you. Trust him. If God is in it, act like he's in it. And he'll take you to places that you never, never dreamt possible. So a very good question, but it's very nuanced. Our answer to that has to be nuanced or it would be misleading. Next question. How do we respond to and discuss with non-Christians secular research that reports, reports that happiness can come from anything other than religion? I'm, I have no idea where these questions come from, just so you'll know. Um, but I, I, I can tell you that my primary response to that would be try to do it in a way that isn't churchy. <laughs> because if you, if you try to explain like these, these things like this in a real churchy manner, it makes people vomit in their mouth. If you, even if they never explain it to you, it's already happening. It's already happening. I have it happen in my counseling office all the, all the time. And I have to keep mints in my briefcase because I don't want my breath to sink after all of that vomiting. And uh, the, the reason, and that's a little bit in jest, not entirely though. <laughs> we have to learn how to talk about our world in a meaningful way. Because what drives your neighbors, what drives your children, what drives your spouses isn't always wrong. In other words, they can't, they, they, there's the majority of people probably, I would just suspect, and I don't have any statistics on this, 
that are in our military are willing to lay down their life for you. Do you realize that? And just because they're not Christians doesn't mean that they don't, they're just moronic and they don't understand anything at all. And I can remember sitting in a, in a conference that uh, Timothy Keller did in 2008. It was called the Dwell Conference. And he spoke of two different passages that I wished I had heard this in the, like 1990. Because he started in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I, Paul said, I didn't come to you in persuasive words of wisdom. And I heard that part. That was the part that they taught me in seminary. And he said, Paul did everything he could to avoid any form of psychological manipulation. But then Keller turns to 2 Corinthians chapter, two, uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore, we persuade men. And he says, what Keller did, he said, that's the exact same term. And you see, I had never considered those things. Because they told me things in seminary, like 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man does not accept the things of God because to him they're foolishness, they're stupid. And they, don't, and they cannot accept them because they're spiritually appraised. And it was just told to me like this, is that the gospel is broadcast on FM frequency and the natural man only has an AM, an AM antenna. That made perfect sense to me until I went to Africa. And I found, my sudden, I found myself not being able to use illustrations of truth, like driving down a road in the crown in the road, you let go of the wheel, and you start feeling it, your car yawn to the right, or what, it, what it's like to look from 40,000 feet down on the ground, because they've never driven a car, and they've never been 40,000 feet off the ground. And suddenly, I had to explain our world in ways that they understood. I had to contextualize. I had to, to make my teaching receiver-oriented and not just be so proud of the fact that it was sender-consistent. It met all the needs that I needed and none of theirs. And that's the problem with our church today. Not just L2, but the church at large. We have a rapidly changing culture and we need to learn how to speak to it. We need to be able to, to explain the things that are profound that Christianity teaches us in ways that are meaningful to the people around us. And I know that's a long answer, but I'm just telling you, ask that God would show you whether or not you're actually effective or not and those that you talk with. Maybe even have the courage to ask them if you are. Perhaps the greatest thing that could have happened to me in the early 1990s is if somebody would have said, you're completely ineffective. You're not being faithful to God because you're not being faithful with me. Maybe that would have gone a long way there, back then. Last question. Oh, I knew there was one more today. <laughs> Can the economic engine element of passion come more from greed than from a genuine assessment of what work we should be doing? Well, of course it could. Of course it could. We all know that, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That just talking about how easily our affections get misled because of wealth. And so, yes, we can actually be misled when it comes to saying, all right, I don't have an economic engine. How can I make this work? And then suddenly we're willing to do something we have no passion for just because we make money. If you do that, I promise you God is not mocked. We see it all the time, right? Go back to the two circles. A person who has excellence, world class, and a person who has um, 
excellence in an economic engine. What this looks like is meeting your doctor outside of his office. You meet him on the golf course and you don't even recognize him because he's developed like an alter ego. He can't bring himself to retire from medicine because he's too good at it and he makes too much money. So he drives his passion from something else. He's trying to artificially sustain that engine for a few years. And so there's something about this that you have to be very careful. Is to say, I would start with your passion to say, okay, what is it that God has given you a heart for? And then ask yourself, am I very good at it? If I'm not very good at it, can I become good at it? And if I become good at it, how can I sustain it? And then you'll have all three circles. But this is not an easy thing to do. And many, many people have been misled by trying to do it the wrong way. Very, very good question. All right, let me pray and we're going to finish our service. Um, we're going to first take communion, which L2 communion is open. You don't have to be a member of L2. Um, communion is basically a public testimony. The broken bread represents a body that was broken for us and the glass of wine represents the blood that was shed for us. And by doing this, you're actually saying, this is my life. And so if you're not a Christian, don't do it. The bread and the wine are not that good, so it's not worth that. But if you are a Christian, examine yourself and come and do this. Show the rest of us that this is who you are. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that these would be a few moments where maybe we could step back with a just a judgment day clarity and be able to ask ourselves, what is it that I believe about my work? I, I know that there are people in this room that kind of slavishly just grind out a Monday to a Friday waiting for the weekend. And I hope what we've seen throughout this series is that, that you're jealous for us. When Solomon came out of all of that funk that he was in in the book of Ecclesiastes, he made this statement over and over again that there's no better thing than for a man to eat and to drink, to enjoy the wife of his youth, and to enjoy the labor that you've given him. And if we find that, we have found a gift from you. And Father, given all that you have revealed to us in Scripture, I believe that there should be far more of us that have unbelievable motivation and passion towards our work than we do. And to discover that means that we're going to have to admit that we don't know how to do that. We're going to have to seek a source of truth that, that actually is credible. And we're going to have to doubt our doubts. We're going to have to be willing to grow and to change. And so I ask that you would give us that rich blessing that Solomon discovered. As we take of communion, partake of it this morning, help us to witness to this city, that we do indeed love you and what you've done through us through your Son, Jesus our Lord. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 